You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. in San Francisco and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Snap's sell-off. Shares plummeting as much as 40% on a disappointing forecast, catalyzing fresh turmoil in tech stocks. How much lower can they go? We will discuss. Plus, Twitter's annual shareholder meeting coming up Wednesday with Elon Musk still pressing pause on a deal. He hasn't tweeted about it recently either. We'll preview what to expect. And California's landmark law requiring corporate boards to include women is ruled unconstitutional. We're going to speak with California first partner Jennifer Siebel Newsom in an exclusive interview. Her take on why we need more parity in the boardroom and the research that backs it up. We will get to all of that in a moment, but first, stocks pairing their losses as a rebound in defensive companies offset a slide in tech shares triggered by that profit warning from Snap. Shares plunging below their IPO price after cutting their revenue and profit forecast, taking other social media stocks and tech more broadly down with it. Jasmine Enberg of Insider Intelligence joins us now with more. So, Jasmine, just how bad does it get for Snap? and the rest of social media. Well, we will be hard pressed to find any social platform that isn't struggling in Q2. The headwinds that we were warned about in Q1 have really turned into these gale force winds and Snap along with Meta are right in the path of this storm that is brewing. Now, Snap of course is blaming macroeconomic conditions and while that is certainly part of it, the reality is is that there is no shortage of challenges right now for the social media platforms, whether that's to do with ad targeting and online privacy, whether that 
that is the war in Ukraine that is making advertisers wary of spending on social media, or whether that's the shift in social media usage that is really leaving these established players playing catch up to a newcomer called TikTok. So would you say TikTok is the one platform that's winning or are these dollars just going away across the board? You know, it, going back to the storm analogy, if there is one platform that is in the eye of the storm, I would say that that is TikTok. We've actually just released a new forecast at Insider Intelligence that shows that TikTok's ad revenues will more than double this year. And in 2022, its ad revenues in the U.S. is going to be um, more than Snapchat and Twitter's combined. Would you say that this extends to not just Facebook and Twitter, but also YouTube? For example, will we continue to see what happened with YouTube last quarter, again this quarter? Yeah, you know, these struggles really extend across all of social media. Now, YouTube is a major competitor to TikTok as well. Um, it's released Shorts, of course, which is its TikTok clone. But we're seeing that even, you know, time that would be spent on, on YouTube, not within Shorts, is going towards TikTok. So there's definitely some competition there as well. So, yeah, I heard one of the skeptics today saying, look, why should I be worried about all of tech or really the rest of the markets just because Snap missed its guidance? How would you respond to that? Well, you know, it is a clear signal within the market that there are these real issues that these social platforms are challenging, are, are, are struggling with. You know, Snap is certainly not the only one that has to grapple with all these problems. A lot of the larger ad players, including Meta, are also dealing with the same ones. And if it's impacting a platform like Snap, which has performed relatively well over the past couple of quarters, you know, it does show some warning signs for the rest of these social platforms as well. Speaking of the rest of these social platforms, we're looking ahead to Twitter's annual shareholder meeting coming up tomorrow. Twitter stuck between Snap and Elon Musk and this broader market meltdown. What are you expecting to happen at this meeting? Well, I think it will be a pretty tense meeting. You know, I mean, the big, two big topics, of course, are going to be Musk as well as the macroeconomic conditions that are really putting pressure on the social media platforms. Now, these two things are separate, but they're also related. The more that Twitter takes a hit, the more fuel Musk has to perhaps renegotiate his position, even walk away from the deal. And if he does that, he will take his lofty plans of making Twitter less reliant on advertising with him. And that's going to leave Twitter in pretty much the same position that it has been for a long time now, which is underperformance. And it's going to be competing with all of these other social platforms, many of which have um, larger ad businesses um, and in an incredibly turbulent market. All right, Jasmine Enberg, Insider Intelligence. Jasmine, always appreciate having your thoughts here on the show. Thank you. Meantime, another story we continue to watch, Elon Musk's other company, Tesla, isolating thousands of workers in China to make sure they are COVID-free. This is part of a large-scale plan by the electric car maker to ramp up production at its plant in Shanghai. After weeks of lockdown, these workers are being housed in unused factories and an old military camp, and they'll be allowed to join other workers inside the production bubble after a two- to three-day quarantine in accordance with government orders.
Twitter's annual meeting kicks off Wednesday, and the company continues to find itself in quite the match. On one side of the ring stands Elon Musk, which, with his offer to buy the platform on pause while he investigates the number of fake accounts. On the other, a tech market meltdown in the wake of Snap cutting its forecast. To talk about what could come out of tomorrow's meeting, joining us now, Jason Goldman, one of the founding members of Twitter and former White House chief digital officer under President Obama. Jason, I'm sure you've been through a few Twitter annual meetings, and this will surely be unlike any other. What are you yeah, expecting? This, yeah, this sort of feels like the Ragnarok of Twitter <laughs> annual meetings where there's there's only sort of one option that shareholders are looking for, which is to know that the deal is going to go through. Because now the deal price looks like this amazing deal and the rest of the world has melted down. And I think the questions are just going to be, can I get my money now? And can Twitter's board really answer that question? I think the most important answer they can assert is that there's no such thing as the deal being on hold. That they, and this is what the GC just said in a, in a Twitter meeting, uh, the contents of which was leaked, that there's no such thing as the deal being on hold. We have a deal for the price that we agreed to, and we are, going, we are committed to executing this deal, and we will force compliance and execution of this deal if we have to. So is Elon Musk just bluffing? Well, I don't know. I think it's interesting that he's been quiet on Twitter for the last little while about this. I, I maybe you know losing seventy billion dollars of your own net worth by uh, by posting about Twitter uh, proved to be even a little expensive for the world's richest man, or or he just figured he was just creating more work for his lawyers in the inevitable litigation that comes out of this. But I I think that he doesn't. I think sometimes folks think that there's these you know plans within plans or feints within feints, and there's this five dimensional chess that people are playing, and I. I really think that Elon realized that a lot of his argument about why he was buying the company just wasn't holding water and he was taking heat from so many sides that he realized it would maybe just be better to be a little quiet about this uh, and hope for a better position later. We've also learned more details about just how this deal came about, how it started with Elon talking to Jack directly, then became a discussion about him joining the board fairly quickly. What do you yeah. find most significant about the timeline? I mean, this is all from Twitter's proxy filing. This isn't based on internal reporting or any sort of confidential sources. This is according to Twitter's, Twitter's own executives and, and board and lawyers what happened. And what happened, according to them, was that Jack and Elon initiated a conversation on March 26th to pursue a strategy of, as Elon says, I'm interested in buying some shares. I want to, uh, and Jack says, okay, let's turn it over to the board and we can see about getting you on the board. He puts them in conversation with Parag and with Brett Taylor, the hand-picked folks that Jack has said is going to lead the company to the next level of execution. And they agree to a standstill provision that prevents Elon from acquiring more shares. And they agree to put Elon on the board. They execute this agreement with Elon on the 4th of April. The next day, on the 5th of April, they announce this deal. The very same day, Jack re-enters the picture with Elon and has a conversation with him in which, according to the filing, he shared his personal view that Twitter would be better able to focus on execution as a private company. And then the deal is completely completely off to put Elon on the board and Elon says he wants to take it to be a private company. So th that to me is just a clear backstabbing of the board uh, by the founder uh, when they had a deal in hand to come to a standstill. So do you think there should be any consequences to that if you believe that, as you're saying, Jack backstabbed the board? 
I, I, what I'm saying is that we need to look at we need to look at the comments that Jack has made here previously. He's always been committed to this notion of Twitter should exist as a protocol and not a platform or a company, and that he's also said later that the board is the is the greatest dysfunction in the history of the company, and that there shouldn't be a CEO. But somehow he convinced himself that he's going to turn over this company to the world's richest man as a way of achieving this glorious decentralized transition to a protocol that to me that to me just doesn't make a lot of sense and there's nothing that elon has said that shows that he's committed to this protocol future in fact he published this fairly ridiculous business plan that shows the type of product that he wants to build on the other side of this acquisition and so i think the questions that i would ask if i were at the shareholder meeting is what was really going on in those conversations between elon and jack and elon and the board because i think that really affects shareholder value here now, last time you joined us, you said you felt that Twitter faced a, a not good outcome either way. Do you still right. believe that, given that the price that Elon and Twitter agreed on is actually much higher than the price at which Twitter is trading at today. It, it would be a great outcome for shareholders of Twitter. That's that's undisputed. And like, you know, you can't, I thought Jasmine did a great job table setting sort of the vibe that's out here right now in the Valley in terms of what we're headed into. It's very much a 2000 dot bust uh, feeling in the air. And, you know, graybeards like myself are sort of counseling uh, younger folks talking about the last bust as though it was the Dust Bowl or something. And, you know, like when we didn't have crawdad, we ate sand and here's how you survive and all this like sort of received wisdom from the last of the last bust and so there's a lot of there's a lot of feeling that this is will be a great outcome for shareholders it's however not a great outcome for the product it's not a great outcome for employees so because elon's plans for what he would do with it have proven to be so unserious that he's just simply shut up about them on twitter altogether how worried about are you about the future of social media in general, given what we just saw with Snap and what Jasmine had to say about slowing user growth? Is that coming for Twitter? Yes. I I think that's coming. I think that is a real macroeconomic effect. And I think there is some validity to the point that uh, the social media moment that we've had for the last 15 years is reaching some sort of endpoint, particularly in terms of how it's valued by the stock market, but maybe even just more generally in terms of what users want. And maybe folks migrate instead in, instead of being in these arenas of public combat where you have to contend with you know just everyone all at once, maybe folks are looking for more private experiences or semi-public experiences. And maybe there's a new evolution of, of social media to come. As, as someone who's not a shareholder and not an uh, employee, this is actually somewhat exciting to me because I, I, I think we've been in a frozen moment for social media and user experience, and it would be great to see some new experiences come out of this. And as we know, a lot of the best companies have been built during these downturns, have been built in the wake of these big corrections. So that is a potential upside to all of this. All right, well, we will be watching as it all goes down tomorrow at the meeting. Jason Goldman, one of the founding members of Twitter, former White House chief digital officer. Always great to have your colorful uh, metaphors here on the show, Jason. Thank you. Meantime, Walmart and its partner DroneUp plan to expand their drone delivery hubs to six states by the end of the year. The idea is that you can have anything you order from toothpaste to diapers to hot dog buns delivered for $3.99, as long as it's under 10 pounds. Still, there are big regulatory hurdles. FAA rules to clear such deliveries have yet to be written. Coming up, Zoom is showing signs it can turn its pandemic boom into post-pandemic growth. We'll talk to the company's CFO, Kelly Steckelberg, next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? 
What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. A rare, bright spot in the markets today. Zoom, which reported progress on customer growth. The video conferencing giant projecting revenue will increase about 10% in the current period. Better than analyst estimates, but still see its slowest quarterly sales growth. Zoom CFO Kelly Steckelberg joins us now. And Kelly, Zoom shares up on the day, which I'm sure is welcome news, given almost everything else is in the red. How is it that Zoom has been able to weather these macroeconomic forces that snap for example, has not. Well, Emily, we are successfully transitioning from being this killer meeting app that everybody came to know and love during the pandemic to an indispensable platform that is comprised of not only Zoom meetings, but also Zoom phone, which had an amazing quarter. We crossed over the 3 million seats sold for Zoom phone, as well as Zoom Contact Center, our new product that was just recently re-released and had some great customer wins. And then Zoom Rooms, which is gonna be a really indispensable part of organization strategy as they're navigating what the future of hybrid work looks like and trying to make that as inclusive as possible. So all now, of that together um, you know, resulted in a strong quarter. So I wonder if it's time to get a little bolder. I mean, you did recently purchase Solvi, but you still have $6 billion in cash on your balance sheet. Should we be expecting you to make more deals? Yeah, so we're really excited. We recently closed Solvi, which will bring conversational AI into our contact center. So welcome to that team. And this is absolutely a really important part of our strategy. As you said, we have a very strong balance sheet and are looking towards M&A to continue to accelerate both our technology as well as our talent acquisition. And then we also are in the middle of a stock repurchase program. Our board approved a billion dollars that we are executing against um, 132 million of stock we repurchased last quarter. 
You did say you're starting to see the impact of the war on Ukraine on sales in Europe. And I'm wondering if you can give us any more details on that. Sure. So we certainly saw some headwinds in our online segment of our business and largely related to the, the war in, in Russia and Ukraine, as well as FX. And so combined, we in our guidance, we indicated that that's having about a 1% impact of revenue. And, you know, this is due to the sanctions that we're seeing as well at, in Russia specifically, as well as the overall impact in Europe, I think due to uncertainty in that region is certainly having a, a dampening effect on our online segment of our business. Meantime, Microsoft Teams seems to be gaining market share in video conferencing. What's the plan to continue to fend them off? So we have a natively built platform that brings together audio, video, chat, contact center, and all of that brings a lot of value to our customers. And every single day we're focusing on delivering happiness to them by bringing them a lot of value in this natively built platform. And we are continuing to innovate. We are investing and hiring in R&D on a global basis and continuing to listen to our customers and build the products that they need, especially, especially in this ever-evolving world of work today. And you're also planning to incorporate more AI features, but privacy advocates seem to have a problem with some of these new ideas. What's been your response to that? So we're really focused on bringing AI into our products to do things like live transcripts, um, also analysis after the meeting. And this is really helpful in terms of one of our new products as well, Zoom IQ for sales. And this is really helpful to organizations as they're trying to make their sales teams more productive and make sure that they're focusing on the right things in their meetings. And we are very thoughtful when we think about bringing any new feature to the market and we'll continue to do so in the area of AI. All right, Kelly Steckelberg, CFO of Zoom. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. And I want to give you an update right now on some breaking news coming out of Texas and that devastating shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Uh, we've just been listening into a press conference by Governor Greg Abbott, who confirmed uh, 15 people were killed, most of them children, elementary school children. The shooter, an 18-year-old, was killed by responding police officers. Uh, a couple of those officers were shot but not hurt seriously. We're continuing to cover uh, the headlines as we get them coming in from Uvalde, Texas, at that elementary school and an absolutely horrific shooting. Uh, more come up next on the show. This is Bloomberg. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. We're continuing to cover this breaking news out of Uvalde, Texas, where 15 people have been killed by an 18-year-old shooter. 14 of those 15 dead, as we understand it at this point, are elementary school children, in addition to a teacher. We're continuing to wait for more details. Uh, as we have them, the shooter was shot and killed by police, and we're going to continue to follow this developing story and bring you um, more headlines. I do want to get back to the markets now with our Ritika Gupta. Ritika, walk us through the movers on the day. 
Yes, Emily. Well, you do have a down day for U.S. stocks, but we really did see some of those losses start to be erased towards the end of the session. So you saw the S&P 500 closing less than 1% lower. We saw some of those defensive sectors starting to perform higher. But of course, the Nasdaq 100 was the underperformer today, being waved down by some of those heavyweights, Tesla, Apple. But we did see really that safe haven bid coming into the Treasury space. So your 60-40 portfolio perhaps having a good day today relatively as we start to see some normalcy coming back in between that correlation. But of course, really what was driving the sentiment, surprisingly, was Snap. And I say surprisingly because it's not the biggest company and it's not even in the S&P 500, Emily, but it did plunge some 40% or more, in fact, on the, that session today. And it did warn about the, the ad revenues going forward. And it really is that macro environment that it was warning about profit margins, inflation, and of course, fears of a slowdown, lower consumer demand, that could reduce the advertising spending because, of course, in times of recession, that's usually what companies are first to slash their budgets on. And you see that really seeping in into those social media stocks today. Pinterest down some 24% in today's session. Uh, Twitter down as well. These companies, social media stocks uh, as a whole today, wiping off more than $160 billion worth of market value today. But it's surprising, and I say it's surprising how surprising investors were in fact because if I look at all of these names on this board behind me there they are all down in the double digits on a year-to-date basis because social media stocks haven't had the best start off to the year and you flip up the board I'll show you a chart really indicating that you see social media group here that is that white line on the chart here it is now trading back at some of those pre-pandemic levels that we saw and this is quite the change I mean it's now trailing the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq 100 but think back to 2020, the height of the pandemic, stay-at-home stock, social media was really soaring. It really was one of the outperformers, shall we say. But now with that reopening, with those fears of a slowdown, what that could mean for advertising revenues, we see that invest investor sentiment has really started to sour, Emily. Indeed, Ritika Gupta, thank you. Meantime, late last week, a Los Angeles Superior Court judge invalidated a California law that required gender parity on corporate boards. Senate Bill 826 was signed into law in 2018 by then-Governor Jerry Brown, making California the first state to require publicly traded companies to include women on their boards, a law that judge found to be unconstitutional. Here with me to talk about that and more is California's first partner, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, who is also the co-founder of California Partners Project, a nonprofit dedicated to promoting gender equality and which is tracking the progress and implementation of this bill. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. So first of all, what has been your reaction to this? Uh, you know, a court uh, in LA striking this down and a judge saying that this law is unconstitutional. Well, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much. Look, I mean, the law has led to progress. We have um, around 1,300 seats filled in the past few years um, with women on public companies in California. Uh, we've uh, nearly doubled the uh, numbers of women, or we've actually doubled the number, the percentage of women on public company boards from 15.5 percent in 2018 to 32 uh, percent this in 2021. 
we um, have nearly tripled the number of board seats held by women because we've increased the number of public companies uh, in California as well. So the law has been a success. Um, and, you know, I'm a firm believer uh, that policy change leads to shifts in hearts and minds and attitudes and behaviors. And so it's been working. But here you have this law now being overturned. Does this set progress back? And how much? Yeah, well, first of all, we're appealing uh, the overturn um, because it ignores the substantial discrimination uh, against women in the selection pro process to be on public company boards. Uh, we all know and, and research indicates um, that the board seats uh, are, are typically held by men who have been conditioned or have biases towards um, selecting women candidates for the board. So everything from misperceptions of risks uh, to just insular networks and artificially narrow searches. So all of this contributes to um, a bar that is raised in the selection process for women and a bar that is lowered for men in the selection process. So again, I'm, I'm confident um, in this appeal uh, that uh, another uh, court will, will see uh, the benefit of this legislation. And again, we only have 300 seats left to fill. And again, I'm, I'm confident that everyone already sees that when you have more diversity, more women in public company board seats, that there's greater profitability, sustainability, um, and ultimately it's just better for business all around. I wonder, though, if this is part of a disturbing trend where we're seeing women backsliding. We saw them backslide mm -hmm. in the pandemic, you know, on the heels of, of, of the Me Too movement. Now we're seeing, you know, companies going through layoffs, uh, heading into a tense macroeconomic environment. The markets are melting down. Are you concerned that women could be backsliding even more as we speak? So... We're living in really strange times. And again, if we look at, you know, S&P um, uh, uh, CEOs and, and, and broadly speaking, the, the board representation and public companies, so 70% of boards seats are held by men and 94% of CEOs are, are male. And we're living in these times of crisis with incredible economic inequality, a climate crisis, public health crisis is war, um, mental health uh, crisis, et cetera, et cetera, coming out of this pandemic. Um, and we're just, there's so much um, that women haven't had seats at the tables of power. And so all to me, all signs point to, you put more women with, and they, with their perspectives and experiences at decision-making tables, and it's just better for business and it's better for our society, it's better for the environment, it's better for everyone. All the studies again indicate that women invest in not just profit, but they'll focus on people and the planet at higher rates than men will. Um, the ESG outcomes of having women sitting on public company boards are substantially greater. So, right. uh, and I'm happy to talk about those in detail, but again, I, I think this all points to the fact that what the past hasn't been working, and so we need to just keep um, supporting and encouraging more women into leadership and giving them seats at the tables where they deserve to be. And I really think that um, women are primed to solve some of these complex issues that we have um, across our economy and society today. 
We're seeing companies increasingly facing pressure to take a stand, whether it's Disney on the don't say gay legislation or companies in general on the you know, potential for Roe versus Wade to be overturned. What do you think companies should do in these situations, knowing that these are very polarizing issues? So you're talking to someone who has always sort of believed in the B Corp model or the, as I said, the triple bottom line model um, that a successful company invests in its employees and provides you know, family-friendly uh, policies and benefits to its employees and pays its employees equitably. Um, a successful company uh, makes sure that it's not um, harming the environment and it's actually leaving the environment and the local community in a better place than it found it. Um, so, and it's profitable. Um, and so I think that companies need to be bold and lean into their values, just like we're leaning into our values in California. And part of that is, as we all know, the greater the diversity you have around the table, the greater the creativity, productivity, and the better bottom line. And so, again, I think okay. Disney needs to be bold. All these companies need to be bold. Similar with Roe v. Wade, they have to lead and lean in with their values. Governor Newsom, your husband, is taking steps to make California kind of a, a safe haven for abortion, recently proposing allocating $125 million in the budget toward reproductive health. What more would you like to see California do? Broadly speaking, I want California to be the state where working moms want to raise their families. Um, I really, and I think that we're actually taking great strides um, in that direction. I'm really proud of the work, again, that we've been doing with regards to pay equity and women on public company boards. Again, um, we're leading the nation, and now we're a world leader when it comes to women on public company boards, and we have the strongest equal pay laws in the nation, um, just as I think we have incredible um, um, laws related to sexual harassment and assault. And so I, I do think that we're creating environments where women can thrive. And we're also so invested in ensuring that kids get the best start in life. So part of my work is also around um, children's mental health and ensuring kids get the best nutrition and spend time outdoors in our state's parks. And um, I'm also chairing the Physical Fitness and Mental Health Council. And so there's a lot coming out of there. Really, again, I'm just really excited for California to be a leader um, in terms of centering women's perspectives and experiences and making sure that their families really thrive. Well, speaking of children, I have to ask you before you go about this absolutely horrific shooting in Uvalde, Texas, where uh, an 18-year-old shooter gunned down 15 people, 14 of them, we believe to be elementary school students in addition to their teacher. What is, what is your reaction to this? Uh, I want to cry. <laughs> um, it's horrifying. I'm a mother of four. Um, we, guns are a major, major, major problem in our country. Toxic masculinity is a major, major, major problem in our country. Misinformation is a major, major problem in our country. Mental health is a major problem. But guns and ammunition kill people, and they don't belong in the hands of people that um, have extreme beliefs, have a lot of hate, um, are, are bigots. Um, are racists, are sexists, are violent offenders. They don't belong in their hands, and semi-automatic weapons definitely do not belong in their hands. So I'm 
a firm believer in common sense gun laws. And again, I think California has been leading the nation and some conservative judges have been challenging us. But I'm really proud of what we've done and what the governor's done with regards to common sense gun legislation. And I, my heart goes out to every child and family member um, who's been impacted. Uh, it's horrible. Indeed, it is. It is absolutely horrifying. Um, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, California's first partner, co-founder of the California Partners Project, thank you for sharing your thoughts here with us. And we'll continue to bring you more details as we have them. This is Bloomberg. I do want to move on to some of the other stories of the day and our crypto report. Crypto keeping a low profile in the midst of this broader market meltdown. Bitcoin falling to a daily average below $29,500. Bitcoin's moves showcasing a fairly strong correlation between cryptocurrencies and other equities, even more so uh, than between the coin and tech stocks. This is institutional investors still spooked by that Terra Luna collapse. Kristen Smith from the Blockchain Association joined my colleague Kaylee Lyons earlier in Davos, talked about what it all means. I think there are two primary issues that get the most attention for regulators. The first is having a way to regulate the spot markets. Today, crypto exchanges in the U.S. have money transmitter licenses, which isn't exactly directly related to what they do most. Um, instead, I think what we need to see is a single uniform federal regulator. Uh, the other issue is stablecoin regulation. And there are many different types of stablecoins. And having disclosures around what are in those reserves, having audits of those, and making that information available to consumers would go a long way towards preventing something like the uh, UST collapse. Kristen, to what extent do you think that blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies at large, have a reputation problem on Capitol Hill? I'm just wondering how much is about perception versus real understanding of how these ecosystems work. What is your sense on how, how great the level of understanding really is among lawmakers? You know, we've made a tremendous amount of progress. If you compare where we were a year ago to where we are today, the overall basic level of education that policymakers have about this asset class has risen quite a bit. The challenge is that this is such a fast-moving industry that's constantly evolving and constantly changing that it takes a lot of work for these policymakers to keep up. But I think what policymakers on Capitol Hill realize is that they have constituents in their district that are investing in these assets, that are building on top of these blockchains, and they're very passionate when it comes to public policy in this space. And so I think we've caught, as an industry and as an ecosystem, we've caught the attention of Congress. And with the exception of a few outliers, most of them are, if not already crypto champions, they are crypto curious and they want to learn about this. So I think it's incumbent upon us in the industry and in the crypto ecosystem to make sure that they continue to grow and learn and understand. And that's a lot of what we do here at the Blockchain Association. Kristen Smith of the Blockchain Association there with my colleague Kaylee Lines. We'll have much more on Bloomberg Technology next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. 
Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I do want to move on to Amazon Web Services. There's an AWS summit underway now in Washington, D.C., taking a deep dive into how public sector organizations are using and can use the cloud to innovate and uh, enhance their digital transformations. Here to talk about that and more, AWS Vice President of Worldwide Public Sector, Max Peterson. Max, give us a status check uh, or a report card uh, of sorts on how companies are managing this, this digital transformation, especially as we come out of the pandemic? That's a great question. Thanks, Emily. We've had over 17,000 people registered to attend the Public Sector Summit here in Washington, D.C. to understand exactly that question. And a couple of significant ways that people are transforming um, public sector business is in terms of speed. Let me give you one quick example. Uh, at the In the um, uh, University of British Columbia, they were working to solve uh, the COVID pandemic problems that we've all had. They had to turn to AWS to be able to provide some immense computing power. And what they were able to do was take 6 million public records about health information, put them into uh, AWS, where they were able to take these records and take what would have been a lengthy process, compress it to 11 days, and be able to identify seven new coronavirus variants. That's the sort of um, power that AWS gives researchers to understand and solve big problems. You're also announcing a new healthcare accelerator that will look at specific healthcare startups. What are the goals for AWS when it comes to the healthcare sector specifically? Yeah, that's a great question. The Healthcare Accelerator is really designed to help small businesses who are really innovative get a four-week intensive on AWS. We give them cloud credits, we give them technical assistance, we connect them with others in the healthcare industry, all to create new solutions. We find that these startup accelerators are the things that really generate tremendous new opportunities and solve really big problems in very innovative ways. We're excited to announce it here. This accelerator is focused on health equity in particular, and it's open for applications from now until July 1st. So, you know, I'm so curious for your thoughts on the labor market and how it's shifting now, especially as 
so many companies are now competing for talent and uh, companies in the cloud specifically. Are, what, what are the interesting trends that you're seeing? Yes, well, I would start off by saying that there is a well-recognized shortage in tech skills, and it's one of the reasons why Amazon took action back in 2019 to announce our program to skill up 29 million people with free cloud skills by 2025. Of course, as a result of the pandemic, there was a temporary increase in the difficulty of obtaining and retaining folks. But as we've come out of the pandemic, we're starting to see these return to uh, more normal circumstances. But I think the key for all of us is to focus on continued skilling, whether it is uh, uh, early age, like our Get IT program, which targets uh, um, 13 to 14 year olds, largely targets uh, women to be able to get them into tech skills, whether it's at the university level, okay. with things like AWS Academy, or whether it's with states that we've embarked upon workforce training programs. Okay, Max Peterson, AWS Max, thank you for your views across all of that. Late last week, a Los Angeles Superior Court judge invalidated a California law that required gender parity on corporate boards. Senate Bill 826 was signed into law in 2018 by then-Governor Jerry Brown, making California the first state to require publicly traded companies to include women on their boards, a law that judge found to be unconstitutional. Here with me to talk about that and more is California's first partner, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, who is also the co-founder of California Partners Project, a nonprofit dedicated to promoting gender equality and which is tracking the progress and implementation of this bill. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. So first of all, what has been your reaction to this? Uh, you know, a court uh, in LA striking this down and a judge saying that this law is unconstitutional. Well, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much. Look, I mean, the law has led to progress. We have um, around 1,300 seats filled in the past few years um, with women on public companies in California. Uh, we've uh, nearly doubled the uh, numbers of women, or we've actually doubled the number, the percentage of women on public company boards from 15.5 percent in 2018 to 32 percent uh, this in 2021. We um, have nearly tripled the number of board seats held by women because we've increased the number of public companies uh, in California as well. So the law has been a success. Um, and, you know, I'm a firm believer uh, that policy change leads to shifts in hearts and minds and attitudes and behaviors. And so it's been working. But here you have this law now being overturned. Does this set progress back? And how much? Yeah, well, first of all, we're appealing uh, the overturn um, because it ignores the substantial discrimination uh, against women in the selection pro process to be on public company boards. Uh, we all know and, and research indicates um, that the board seats uh, are, are typically held by men who have been conditioned or have biases towards um, selecting women candidates for the board. So everything from misperceptions of risks uh, to just insular networks and artificially narrow searches. So all of this contributes to um, a bar that is raised in the selection process for women and a bar that is lowered for men in the selection process. So again, I'm, I'm confident 
um, in this appeal uh, that uh, another uh, court will will see uh, the benefit of this legislation. And again, we only have 300 seats left to fill. And again, I'm I'm confident that everyone already sees that when you have more diversity, more women in public company board seats, that there's greater profitability, sustainability, um, and, and ultimately, it's just better for business all around. I wonder, though, if this is part of a disturbing trend where we're seeing women backsliding. We saw them backslide mm -hmm. in the pandemic, you know, on the heels of, of, of the Me Too movement. Now we're seeing, you know, companies going through layoffs, uh, heading into a tense macroeconomic environment. The markets are melting down. Are you concerned that women could be backsliding even more as we speak? So... We're living in really strange times, and again, if we look at you know S and P um, uh, uh, CEOs and 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 broadly speaking, the the board representation and public companies. So seventy percent of boards seats are held by men, and ninety four percent of CEOs are are male. And we're living in these times of crisis with incredible economic inequality, a climate crisis, public health crisis, is war. Um, mental health uh, crisis, et cetera, et cetera, coming out of this pandemic. Um, and we're just, there's so much um, that women haven't had seats at the tables of power. And so all to me, all signs point to, you put more women with, and with their perspectives and experiences at decision-making tables, and it's just better for business and it's better for our society, it's better for the environment, it's better for everyone. All the studies, again, indicate that women invest in not just profit, but they'll focus on people and the planet at higher rates than men will. Um, the ESG outcomes of having women sitting on public company boards are substantially greater. So, right. uh, and I'm happy to talk about those in detail. But again, I, I think this all points to the fact that what the past hasn't been working, and so we need to just keep um, supporting and encouraging more women into leadership and giving them seats at the tables where they deserve to be. And I really think that um, women are primed to solve some of these complex issues that we have um, across our economy and society today. We're seeing companies increasingly facing pressure to take a stand, whether it's Disney on the don't say gay legislation or companies in general on the you know, potential for Roe versus Wade to be overturned. What do you think companies sh should do in these situations, knowing that these are very polarizing issues? So you're talking to someone who has always sort of believed in the B Corp model or the, as I said, the triple bottom line model um, that a successful company invests in its employees and provides you know, family-friendly uh, policies and benefits to its employees and pays its employees equitably. Um, a successful company uh, makes sure that it's not um, harming the environment and it's actually leaving the environment and the local community in a better place than it found it. Um, so, and it's profitable. Um, and so I think that companies need to be bold and lean into their values, just like we're leaning into our values in California. And part of that is, as we all know, the greater the diversity you have around the table, the greater the creativity, productivity, and the better bottom line. And so, again, I think okay. Disney needs to be bold. All these companies need to be bold. Similar with Roe v. Wade, they have to lead and lean in with their values. 
Governor Newsom, your husband, is taking steps to make California kind of a, a safe haven for abortion, recently proposing allocating $125 million in the budget toward reproductive health. What more would you like to see California do? Broadly speaking, I want California to be the state where working moms want to raise their families. Um, I really, and I think that we're actually taking great strides um, in that direction. I'm really proud of the work, again, that we've been doing with regards to pay equity and women and public company boards. Again, um, we're leading the nation, and now we're a world leader when it comes to women and public company boards, and we have the strongest equal pay laws in the nation, um, just as I think we have incredible um, um, laws related to sexual harassment and assault. And so I do think that we're creating environments where women can thrive. And we're also so invested in ensuring that kids get the best start in life. So part of my work is also around um, children's mental health and ensuring kids get the best nutrition and spend time outdoors in our state's parks. And um, I'm also chairing the Physical Fitness and Mental Health Council. And so there's a lot coming out of there. Really, again, I'm just really excited for California to be a leader um, in terms of centering women's perspectives and experiences and making sure that their families really thrive. Well, speaking of children, I have to ask you before you go about this absolutely horrific shooting in Uvalde, Texas, where uh, an 18-year-old shooter gunned down 15 people, 14 of them, we believe to be elementary school students in addition to their teacher. What is, what is your reaction to this? Uh, I want to cry. <laughs> um, it's horrifying. I'm a mother of four. Um, we, guns are a major, major, major problem in our country. Toxic masculinity is a major, major, major problem in our country. Misinformation is a major, major problem in our country. Mental health is a major problem. But guns and ammunition kill people, and they don't belong in the hands of people that um, have extreme beliefs, have a lot of hate, um, are, are bigots. Um, are racists, are sexists, are violent offenders. They don't belong in their hands, and semi-automatic weapons definitely do not belong in their hands. So I'm a firm believer in common sense gun laws. And again, I think California's been leading the nation, and some conservative judges have been challenging us. But I'm really proud of what we've done and what the governor's done with regards to common sense gun legislation. And I, my heart goes out to every child and family member um, who's been impacted. Uh, it's horrible. Indeed. It is, it is absolutely horrifying. Um, Jennifer Siebel right. Newsom, California's first partner, co-founder of the California Partners Project, thank you for sharing your thoughts here with us. And I just want to lay out what we know, again, about this shooting in Uvalde, Texas. 15 people killed so far, 14 of them children in addition to their teacher. According to the governor of Texas, uh, the shooter was an 18-year-old uh, person who was shot and killed by police. A couple of police were also injured, uh, but they uh, were not killed. Um, we're continuing uh, to follow uh, everything that uh, is happening at this um, uh, sh the site of this shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and we'll continue to bring you more details as we have them. This is Bloomberg.
We're continuing to cover uh, breaking headlines out of the shooting scene in Uvalde, Texas, where 14 elementary school students have been killed in addition to their teacher. The shooting suspect, an 18-year-old man, also killed by police. Again, we'll bring you more details as we have them. I do want to move on to some of the other stories of the day and our crypto report. Crypto. Keeping a low profile in the midst of this broader market meltdown, Bitcoin falling to a daily average below $29,500. Bitcoin's moves showcasing a fairly strong correlation between cryptocurrencies and other equities, even more so uh, than between the coin and tech stocks. This is institutional investors still spooked by that Terra Luna collapse. Kristen Smith from the Blockchain Association joined my colleague Kaylee Lines earlier in Davos, talked about what it all means. I think there are two primary issues that get the most attention for regulators. The first is having a way to regulate the spot markets. Today, crypto exchanges in the U.S. have money transmitter licenses, which isn't exactly directly related to what they do most. Um, instead, I think what we need to see is a single uniform federal regulator. Uh, the other issue is stablecoin regulation. And there are many different types of stablecoins. And having disclosures around what are in those reserves, having audits of those, and making that information available to consumers would go a long way towards preventing something like the uh, UST collapse. Kristen, to what extent do you think that blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies at large, have a reputation problem on Capitol Hill? I'm just wondering how much is about perception versus real understanding of how these ecosystems work. What is your sense on how, how great the level of understanding really is among lawmakers? You know, we've made a tremendous amount of progress. If you compare where we were a year ago to where we are today, the overall basic level of education that policymakers have about this asset class has risen quite a bit. The challenge is that this is such a fast-moving industry that's constantly evolving and constantly changing that it takes a lot of work for these policymakers to keep up. But I think what policymakers on Capitol Hill realize is that they have constituents in their district that are investing in these assets, that are building on top of these blockchains, and they're very passionate when it comes to public policy in this space. And so I think we've caught, as an industry and as an ecosystem, we've caught the attention of Congress. And with the exception of a few outliers, most of them are, if not already crypto champions, they are crypto curious and they want to learn about this. So I think it's incumbent upon us in the industry and in the crypto ecosystem to make sure that they continue to grow and learn and understand. And that's a lot of what we do here at the Blockchain Association. Kristen Smith of the Blockchain Association there with my colleague Kaylee Lines. We'll have much more on Bloomberg Technology next. Um, I do want to move on to Amazon Web Services. There's an AWS summit underway now in Washington, D.C., taking a deep dive into how public sector organizations are using and can use the cloud to innovate and uh, enhance their digital transformations. Here to talk about that and more, AWS Vice President of Worldwide Public Sector, Max Peterson. Max, give us a status check uh, or a report card uh, of sorts on how companies are managing this, this digital transformation, especially as we come out of the pandemic. 
That's a great question. Thanks, Emily. We've had over 17,000 people registered to attend the Public Sector Summit here in Washington, D.C., to understand exactly that question. And a couple of significant ways that people are transforming um, public sector business is in terms of speed. Let me give you one quick example. Uh, at the In the um, uh, University of British Columbia, they were working to solve uh, the COVID pandemic problems that we've all had. They had to turn to AWS to be able to provide some immense computing power. And what they were able to do was take 6 million public records about health information, put them into uh, AWS where they were able to take these records and take what would have been a lengthy process, compress it to 11 days and be able to identify seven new coronavirus variants. That's the sort of um, power that AWS gives researchers to understand and solve big problems. You're also announcing a new healthcare accelerator that will look at specific healthcare startups. What are the goals for AWS when it comes to the healthcare sector specifically? Yeah, that's a great question. The healthcare accelerator is really designed to help small businesses who are really innovative get a four-week intensive on AWS. We give them cloud credits, we give them technical assistance, we connect them with others in the healthcare industry, all to create new solutions. We find that these startup accelerators are the things that really generate tremendous new opportunities and solve really big problems in very innovative ways. We're excited to announce it here. This accelerator is focused on health equity in particular, and it's open for applications from now until July 1st. So, you know, I'm so curious for your thoughts on the labor market and how it's shifting now, especially as so many companies are now competing for talent and companies in the cloud specifically. What are the interesting trends that you're seeing? Yes. Well, I would start off by saying that there is a well-recognized shortage in tech skills, and it's one of the reasons why Amazon took action back in 2019 to announce our program to skill up 29 million people with free cloud skills by 2025. Of course, as a result of the pandemic, there was a temporary increase in the difficulty of obtaining and retaining folks. But as we've come out of the pandemic, we're starting to see these return to uh, more normal circumstances. But I think the key for all of us is to focus on continued skilling, whether it is uh, uh, early age, like our Get IT program, which targets uh, um, 13 to 14 year olds, largely targets uh, women to be able to get them into tech skills, whether it's at the university level, okay. with things like AWS Academy, or whether it's with states that we've embarked upon workforce training programs. Okay, Max Peterson, AWS Max, thank you for your views across all of that. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.